Wired.com presents The Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. And here is your host, David Barr Kirtley. Hello, and welcome to episode 234 of Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. Our guest today is Jerry Canavan. He's an assistant professor of 20th and 21st century literature at Marquette University in Milwaukee, Wisconsin, and he's also a co-editor at the academic journals Extrapolation and Science Fiction Film and Television. He's also co-edited two critical anthologies on science fiction, The Cambridge Companion to American Science Fiction, which he co-edited with Eric Carl Link, and Green Planets, Ecology in Science Fiction, which he co-edited with Kim Stanley Robinson. And we'll be speaking with him today about his new book, Octavia E. Butler, the latest volume in the Modern Masters of Science Fiction series from the University of Illinois Press. And if you want to hear me list my two favorite Octavia Butler short stories, check out the recent interview with me in episode 43 of the Vocal Minority Report podcast, which also includes a lot of discussion about writing, podcasting, and the importance of science fiction. So again, that's the Vocal Minority Report podcast, and I'm the guest in episode 43. All right, and so now here's our interview with Jerry Canavan. All right, so we're here with Jerry Canavan. Welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Okay, and so your new book is called Octavia E. Butler, and it's part of the Modern Masters of Science Fiction series. So how did this book come about? Oh, well, it's part of the series. I met the editors of the series at a conference in Orlando that happens every year called the International Conference for the Fantastic and the Arts, and was invited to submit a pitch and... I was given a list of who they already had in the pipeline, and Octavia Butler wasn't picked, so it was no-brainer for me. And uh, submitted a proposal, was lucky enough to have it accepted, and then got started. So why do you say it was a no-brainer? Oh, she's not only one of the kind of greatest uh, writers of uh, science fiction, or generally uh, of the latter half of the 20th century, but uh, she's a, just a personal favorite of mine. I think about her work a lot. Mm-hmm. And so, how did you go about researching the book? So I began in just kind of thinking about it uh, as a kind of literary project. And what came about as I was researching was the availability of her papers. And so my book becomes a little bit uh, unusual in the Modern Masters series because it's so based on her archives. I was actually one of the first people who got to go in and look at them once they were opened up to the public. Will you say a bit more about these archives? They're at the Huntington? (laughs) Yeah, they're at the Huntington Library in Pasadena. Um, She... Uh, to answer a question I sometimes get, she definitely wanted everybody to see them. Um, she the, the paperwork about donating them is included in the collection as well as notes specifically to her mother about wanting this to happen. Uh, so when she passed away, uh, they basically came to her house and, and boxed up what was available. And it turned out that it was almost literally every piece of paper she'd ever touched. She kept everything. And so it took them several years just to process it, organize it, and make it available to anybody to look at. And it so happened that just as this project was getting started, and uh, just as I got the funds to do it, uh, the library announced that they were opening it up. Right. And so, so you're saying it's like tens of thousands of papers, right? Like, what, what exactly is the... How, could you quantify how much stuff is in there? Uh, I, I, my token is usually that the finding aid that tells you what's in it is 500 pages long. <laughs> so um, it, it is you know, dozens upon dozens of boxes, each filled with hundreds of pages of paper. Um, going back to her childhood, I mean, her childhood composition moments where she was writing, um, some of her first stories are available there. And so how much, were you, how much of that were you, were you able to actually read yourself? I did my best. Uh, I went uh, two times uh, for a month each at a time. Uh, I looked at um, the manuscripts of the major unfinished work first. Um, 
and a lot of her personal journals were kind of tied up with what she was working with at the time, so I got a lot of it that way. Uh, I looked at letters that seemed relevant. Uh, I looked at, um, in addition to personal journals, she had what she called, or what what the library is calling commonplace books, which were kind of just bound journals she took on a trip or something with her. So I looked at those as best I could. Uh, I was really into her early career, and so I looked at some of the stuff she was writing when she was a child. Um, but I, you know, any anybody who goes really could only scratch the surface. So I I did my best. Because you live in Milwaukee, is that right? Right. So I went in uh, November, December, January, two years in a row, and um, for about a month or five weeks at a time each time. Were you staying in a hotel or sleeps with friends or something? Or um, I was able to stay in um, somebody's house <laughs> that I got off a, a house swapping website that professors use um, for sabbaticals. Uh, and was lucky enough to have funding first from my institution, Marquette University, and then uh, the second time from the Huntington itself to go and um, kind of almost broke even on it. Not quite, but <laughs> it was close enough that I was able to do it. That's great. But you, I mean, and you said that she did want these papers, um, you know, bequested in this way. But you said that also in, in the book, you say that since she died unexpectedly, she never, you know, um, went through them and pulled out anything. So it's it's this really intimate, um, uncensored view that you get and that you feel like you have to maybe you, you, you try, it, it was a, a bit of a, a struggle to try to be, um, uh, you know, to decide what to put in the book and what not to. Uh, it was a hard problem as a writer because, you know, like I said, she definitely wanted us to see it. There was a lot of interesting stuff there that she deliberately kept for us. Uh, but she didn't get that last chance to kind of officially prune it, turn it over, take out anything that she didn't want people to see. Um, so everyone who looks at them is going to have to make their own decisions about what feels right to talk about and what doesn't from the from the collection. And um, like I say in the introduction of my book, I just I hope people think I did a mostly OK job of of making those kinds of determinations. Um but it, it's it's an ethical problem for any archivist, right? Because uh, it's an incredibly unfiltered view of her life. Yeah, yeah. Okay, well, so tell us a little bit about her early life. She uh, decided she wanted to be a writer after watching Devil Girl from Mars. Uh, yeah, that's a, the famous story she tells that um, she realized that somebody got paid to write that story uh, as bad as it was, this kind of classic B-movie, and then decided, I could do that too. Uh, and so she she was already telling herself a lot of stories. She was very inverted. She had started to write them down. Um, she says when she started to realize she was forgetting some of her favorites. But that night seems to have been a real pivotal moment for her in terms of uh, orienting her towards science fiction. Um, she was growing up in poverty um, with, a, with a single mom uh, who worked as a maid. So she you know, didn't necessarily have a ton of support, uh, even within her own family. Um, they they treated it more as an indulgence, it seems like, than as um, something she could plausibly make as her career. And uh, she had a similar kind of attitude with teachers, um, constantly encouraged to go on to do something more practical with her life. She had a teacher who said, can't you ever write anything normal? <laughs> yeah, that's a story she tells about a creative writing teacher, right, who just got frustrated with her weird, uh, often grotesque stories. And she had uh, an aunt who told her that black people can't be writers. Uh, yeah, and um, and uh, uh, her mother also kind of wanted her to have a practical career as well. They encouraged her very strongly to to do something practical, um, secretarial work or, or nursing. A number of her relatives were nurses. Yeah, but she was always, she said that she would rather die than not be a writer. In most of her um, journals across her life, she really felt like writing made her life uh, worthwhile and um if you look at how long it took her to really hit as a writer, um, she starts writing some of these stories um, 
in her very early teens and doesn't sell her first novel until she's 29, right? So she's working these stories over and over and over again, um, oftentimes in very marginal circumstances financially, working these jobs she despises. Um, one of the fascinating things about seeing the the paper, right, because she was working on a typewriter, um, is how much paper she was seemingly taking from her employers to use at home. Um, so it's all on the back of this kind of legal letterhead or corporate letterhead. Yeah. And she talks about obsession, about positive obsession, she calls it. Uh, that's her advice to writers, yeah, that it's it's not about inspiration or about genius, but it's about habits. Um, and she would, you know, get up before work to write for a few hours. She was incredibly dedicated on that level. Um, and and did that even when she no longer needed to. I mean, she she only felt happy, as I say, when she was writing. Yeah, I mean, getting up at two or three a.m. Right. <laughs> oh yeah, incredibly early, and um, you know that that was what she felt like was the kind of center of her life, um, and that everything else. I mean, she it, this it's funny to read her journals where she talks about her excitement at the prospect that she'll be fired, so she can go <laughs> on unemployment and she uh, will have all this extra time to writing. Right? She's like looks forward to being laid off periodically from these jobs. Um, somewhere she describes the unemployment office as her second home. Hmm. And she was a big comic book fan, right? Uh, as a kid, yeah, she read um, a lot of comics. Um, Superman first, and then kind of moved over into the Marvel stuff. And uh, when she went to the Clarion Writers Workshop, she asked her mother uh, to pick up the comics that came out while she was gone with very specific issue numbers um, and titles. Right. Well, and say about, about Clarion, because how did she ends up at Clarion? Because she, she meets Harlan Ellison, right? Yeah. So her big personal turning point is that she takes a writing class, um, an extension class that Harlan Ellison was doing uh, in LA County to reach out to writers of color. And she wrote for him, and he became this incredible uh, supporter of her work, uh, pushed her um, to go to Clarion, where he was going to be one of the teachers, um, gave her some money, even bought her a typewriter, uh, and was this kind of really early mentor uh, for her. Um, so she finally uh, is able to go to the inaugural session of Clarion out in Pennsylvania, uh, her first time outside of California. Um, and it's this kind of, you know, real seminal experience it for in good ways and bad um she meets writers like vonda mcintyre she's friends with for the rest of her life um amazing teachers list there right that joanna russ was there delaney was there ellison was there right all of these great mentors um she sells two stories while she's there um one of which appears in this kind of marginal clarion magazine the other of which was supposed to be in um the last dangerous visions books that never appeared um and so this she has this kind of great moment of of coming out and then nothing you know, for another decade and a half. Right, right. So this last Dangerous Visions was an anthology that Harlan Ellison edited, and it was the third in a series of very high profile, um, you know, short story anthologies. And so it seems like this is going to really launch her career. And then... that's, what, that's what she believed. And that's what he told her, right? I mean, he, he had the best of intentions. And he thought, I did these other two, and this one will come out. And this is going to be your launch pad to fame. And the book never materialized. It still hasn't come out. I think he still says he's going to put it out. Um, but it's it's been a long time, and that story was finally released as an ebook. Um, you can buy it on on online from Open Road Media. It's called Childfinder. It's a really good story. Yeah, but so so she's had all this you know all this frustration not getting published, and then she thinks she's gotten her big break, and then she doesn't sell anything else for six. That that story never comes out, and she doesn't sell anything else for six years still. Uh, yeah, it was a it was a real incredible disappointment for her, and. Um, that period is very hard to read in her journal. She's thinking about all of these different uh, ways to try to stay 
writing. At times she thinks of giving up or moving into commercial fiction, becoming a photographer, thinks about going back to school. Uh, But writing is always the thing, this kind of gravity center that pulls her back. And so I mentioned that she we mentioned that she was this comic book fan and you say a lot of her her earliest work was all in this patternist milieu and it's sort of you say it's like kind of like superhero stories without any of the heroes. Uh, That's my take on it. Right. So she wrote in a number of series uh, over the course of her life. The one she begins with is this patternist story, uh, which consumes most of that period for when she's around 12 and starts writing um, till she sells the book. in the mid seventies. And they're all around this, um, emergence of mutant telepaths. Uh, and it takes place across different moments in time. So in the published versions, we have the version in wild seed where the mutant telepaths are kind of getting their start in Africa. Um, we have the version in patternist, her first published novel, which is when they've taken over the world of the far future. Uh, and then a couple in the middle, like clay's arc, right. Or survivor, um, about what they're doing in these kind of intermediate spaces. Um, and they all are pretty much, you know, very similar to the stories she might have read in a comic book or in um, the Campbell style kind of superhuman, psychic superhuman kind of story that you see in the period. Um, but without the heroic character that usually kind of dominates them, the Pattermasters are bad people. They're slavers. They don't really care about the normals. Um, they do effectively take over the world as well as murder each other without a lot of compunction. Um, and so there's this really kind of dark take on the superhero stories that uh, really interested her when she was a child. Yeah. You say that this is kind of like Watchmen or something decades before Watchmen. Yeah. She really anticipates um, a lot of what happened to superhero stories, comic books um, in the decades since uh, she wrote and was reading them, right? That, that in some sense, these stories turn toxic, right? That they will all wind up murdering each other. You can't tell the heroes from the bad guys anymore. Uh, and she was there much earlier, I think, than the industry wound up being. Yeah, yeah. Okay. And so, so she, she always, you said, mentioned she has these financial problems. And so she kind of becomes fixated on this idea of having a bestseller, of having millions of readers, what she calls a yes book. Talk, talk about what, what is a yes book. So she was very, she did intense studies of what was making people's work um, successful. Uh, across different genres. And one of the things she thought about a lot was um, speaking to an audience's desires, right? Thinking about what they wanted to read and what they wanted to read was an optimistic book. So a yes book. Unfortunately for her, all of her ideas kind of turned sour. Um, And she always kind of writes instead, no books, right? No stories about people who either lose or who kind of barely make it through. Um, And from her perspective, she was kind of always struggling for that kind of breakout moment. She was fascinated, right, by this career of Stephen King um, and looked to him and what what he did. And it's strange to think of him, I think, a little bit as a as a yes writer. Um, but she kind of saw all of these people in those kinds of terms and wrote a lot of her work and re- revised it with an eye towards bestsellerdom. Right. So you say, like, going through her archives, you can see that often the initial thing is super, super dark. And then she's trying to pull it back a little bit to try to make it not something that's just not going to turn off readers. Uh, yeah, I think that's especially true of uh, images of sexual violence, which are um, already commonplace in her published work. But um, there's a lot of stuff on the cutting room floor that's kind of eye popping uh, with regard to that. Yeah. And it seems like the closest she came really to a yes book was Kindred, which was sort of her most widespread mainstream success. Right. Talk about that book. So Kindred is the one that, uh, it, it went out of print too, but was only at print very briefly 
and has never been out of print since. It's really the gold standard, I think, of her work uh, in the mainstream and uh, probably the one that's most widely read. And it's a deconstruction of time travel narrative, right? It's one thing to think about going back in time if you're a white man. It's a very different thing to go back in time if you're a black woman. And so it kind of takes apart what it would be like to find yourself in um, the antebellum South, right, uh, at risk of enslavement uh, with this encounter. And so her character kind of continuously is pulled back in time. She ultimately discovers that she's been pulled back in time because she has a white ancestor who is a slaver, uh, who is <laughs> it's almost comedic as the story goes on, constantly getting himself into these kind of near-death experiences that she has to emerge out of nowhere to save him from. Um, and so over time, she gets kind of more and more embroiled in his life as he gets older and older because she needs to make sure that she's going to get born. Right. So, so she becomes complicit then in these, these, these crimes of history, because if she changes anything, she won't be born. And so no matter how bad the things are that he does, she has to help him help save him. Yeah, it's, it's this kind of horrible vision of collaboration rather than resistance. And that was something that was really important to her. Um, she hardly ever wrote stories about revolutionaries, right, or people who uh, were going to fight the system. She thought those people wound up dead. And so she was actually more interested in people who kind of um, snuck by, right, or who were able to find a way to live. And uh, her character in that book is like that. She has to keep going back um, to ensure the continuity of this guy's life in order to allow herself to ever be born, uh, which in part includes perpetuating his uh, slave regime on his plantation, right, kind of abetting the rape of the woman, uh, the enslaved woman who was her other ancestor from that period, and making sure that that woman gets impregnated. Um, it becomes a very difficult tale. Um, the character ultimately makes a rule for herself um, that she th there's a line she won't cross, which is to sleep with the her ancestor herself. Um, and at the end of the book, once she's kind of assured her own existence, um, she's able to kill him and they and gets teleported back to the future uh, and winds up with her arm stuck in the wall. This horrific image of um, the scar that this experience has left on her. So you called it a yes book and it is a little bit, but it's um, still incredibly dark take on uh, the history of this country. Yeah. Well, she said it was inspired by some 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 conversations she had, right? She had like a conversation with her mom and then a conversation with a classmate, right? Talk about that. Yeah, so the classmate conversation is the one that really seems to have stuck with her. Uh, it was during this kind of black power moment of the 70s and the classmate is saying, um, you know, I, I'd ha I want to kill all the people who are holding us back, right? The people of my own race who are holding us back, but I have to start with my own parents. Um, and she had a really different attitude towards it that she thought, you know, when she thought of her own mother as this hero who had kind of kept her alive in miserable circumstances, right, and had swallowed all sorts of indignities and poverty uh, and miseries uh, in the name of keeping her child alive. Uh, and so she thought that, you know, the, the body of African-Americans who are alive in the 1960s who are alive today come out of that kind of relationship, not this kind of fantastic relationship of uh, fighting back and killing your attacker. Um, and so Kindred is about investigating what it means to, to live in that circumstance, as are a lot of her books, right? Um, one of the things that's so amazing about her career is that, you know, I, I mentioned in the book that Ellison tells her to write black, right? To write, to use her race as a way of marketing herself. Um, and she doesn't want to do that because she wants to stand um, on her own merits as she sees it, but also because the stories she wants to tell don't really work with that milieu very well, right? She writes stories about collaboration, not about victory and not about defeat, but about this kind of uneasy middle ground. Right. And you say in the book that she was 
for decades the sole prominent black female voice in science fiction. Did you get a sense from her letters of how she felt about that? Oh, she was very aware of it. Um, I believe she was um, the sole prominent voice and the only woman making money, like making a living writing science fiction uh, for that for most of that period. Um, and she was really interested in that. And you see that in a number of ways, right? The way she talks to her own publisher about how she should be marketed. Uh, she sends letters to Toni Morrison uh, around uh, the Clay's Ark period to try to see if she can market her book in a more mainstream publisher rather than in a uh, kind of niche uh, science fiction publishing. Um, so she was very attuned to it on, from a marketing perspective. Uh, she was also this incredible mentor. I mean, she, she would get letters from all sorts of women uh, who were trying to break into the industry and would write them back, not just with detailed comments about how they should improve their writing, but with her home phone number. And she would tell them to call them if she want, they wanted to talk more. Um, so she was just incredibly generous on that level. Um, she really had a sense of herself uh, as, you know, not quite an ambassador, but as being perceived in that way, right? Um, and it frustrated her and it empowered her in different moments and in different ways. Mm -hmm. And I guess in the 70s, she was getting some pushback from people who were saying that black writers should all be writing about the present and about the, the current struggles and that they saw science fiction as, um, you know, escapism. Uh, yeah, a lot of the people that she was in contact with around uh, black politics found it to be a distraction uh, from kind of the concrete real world struggle of fantasy land stuff, right? Um, and she talks about that in Blood Child and in some of those essays you were talking about before, like Positive Obsession. Um, how can you care about something that's so unreal? Um, but she felt like it was empowering. And I think that vision of what it means to write science fiction has become a really important part of this kind of Afrofuturist moment we're living in with so many writers who were inspired by her and by Delaney and some other people. Um, using this as a way to talk about the present in really interesting and concrete ways. Well, right. And imagining other futures and other societies and questioning conventional wisdom, she says, has a lot, obviously, to offer to black readers. Oh, for sure. Yeah. Um, when she was approached to do an anthology about black science fiction, she was really interested in that, took it so seriously, right, as a way of trying to think of futures that weren't just about subordinating blacks to whites, right? Um, either kind of literally nightmare futures where slavery is reinstated or metaphorically, right? That the only thing blacks had to offer to the country uh, was a rumination on the race problem. So she really tried to open up um, different kinds of speculation that were just about the future of race. Mm -hmm. And she wrote this essay about race in science fiction called Lost Races of Science Fiction that you actually included in this book. Why did you think it was so important to include that? Well, I've seen it quoted so many times and it's impossible to get. It pretty much appeared just in this fanzine uh, in 1980 and then never again. Um, and so when I found a copy of it in the archive and uh, talked to the state, uh, they were kind enough to let us republish it, um, at least in the first edition. I hope we can kind of continue to publish it in later editions as well. Um, her thoughts about the use of race and science fiction and really the way um, in her moment, and I think you still see it pretty clearly, science fiction is a little bit afraid of getting too deep into the racial question um, and often tries to turn it into a metaphor rather than ever kind of deal with it concretely. So she talks about Star Wars and Alien and um, some other kind of prominent blockbuster uh, science fiction at the time. Right, and she talks about how it's just a struggle just getting anyone to, to in the field to acknowledge that you should write about people of color. Yeah, they, there's this crazy idea they have that she keeps hearing, right, that um, 
it ruins the story somehow to bring race into it, right? And so just make them, you know, purple robot men from Planet 12, and then you can talk about race in this kind of slant way, but you don't need to include um, characters of color. And she just thought that was so ridiculous. Uh, and so the essay is kind of this long, you know, essentially argument with the people she's talking to at the time uh, who don't want to include characters of color in the world that they invented. Yeah, and it's interesting just to see, I mean, some of these same discussions are still going on now to see how far back these, you know, how um, intractable these kinds of things can be. Oh, it's so relevant. I mean, the the question of the rabid puppies and the sad puppies and this debate over the Lovecraft statue for the World Fantasy Award, right, which uh, has been proposed to be replaced with a bust of Octavia Butler. Um, we're still kind of wrestling with that question of um, just how much of our uh, science fiction, first of all, doesn't want to think about race. And then second of all, how it's so structured by ideas of race, right? By um, ideas of aliens who all look alike and all think the same way and who are all kind of radically different from us. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So I want to talk about the, the Xenogenesis trilogy. You say that this is your favorite of Butler's fictions. Why is that? Well, I just, you know, I'm like her. I was a big Star Trek fan, um, really interested in um, questions of aliens. And it's just such a great story about um, what happens when the aliens show up uh, and how we get involved in them. This kind of totally inventive take on why they might come here, what they might want with us, what might happen with it. Um, it was the story that when I got back into Butler in graduate school, it was the first one um, that uh, I, I read and kind of read the rest of the trilogy that weekend, even though it wasn't on the assignment, uh, and then just kept reading everything she had through the through the end of the summer until I read it all again. Um, so it was it's a special book to me in that sense, too, that kind of, in a way, started me on this project again. All right. So for people who haven't read it, just say a little bit more about what the premise of the series is. So the premise of the series basically is that um, humanity blows itself up. Uh, we have a nuclear war. And in the aftermath of the nuclear war, the aliens come. And they scoop up all these survivors, and they put us in pods, uh, and they kind of interrogate us and wake us up and do tests on us. And what the aliens are interested in, because they're gene traders, genetic traders, um, they're interested in cancer. They think cancer is the thing they need to turn themselves essentially um, into super beings, right? That once they have cancer in their genes because of all the other contragenetic manipulations they can do, um, they'll be able to to basically transform themselves into an entirely new form of life. So they want cancer. Um, they're going to have it no matter what. Um, and so they wake up this woman, Lilith, and ask her essentially to um, help them merge the human race with the aliens. And so over the course of the series, Lilith and then later her children are kind of forced into this relationship with them of, again, collaboration, right? She becomes the headmaster of um, an alien colony that in some sense is saving humanity and in another sense is extinguishing it right and so you say this has been really controversial among scholars is are these aliens good guys or bad guys basically yeah it's it's just amazing oftentimes with the scholars not even really kind of recognizing the other side of the equation right so um the central question becomes whether or not they're saviors or monsters right um there are things about them that seem really appealing. You know, they have no concept of race. Their ideas of gender are really kind of uh, different. Um, they don't want to kill us. They want to kind of save us and merge us with them. But all of their rhetoric still sounds like white man's burden, kind of colonialist propaganda, right? Essentially that they know better than we know. Um, they can tell that we're unsuitable to rule ourselves. Um, 
and on some basic level that they don't care whether we're happy with this arrangement or not, but they need the cancer and um, they're going to take it from us. And we can either do it the easy way or the hard way. But it, it, you say it seems like Butler uh, leaned toward the they're good guys view. Uh, in the end, so when she starts writing the Owen Colley series um, in the 70s, it's in the patternist milieu. She imagined um, a space empire that was kind of hanging off those super mutant telepath stories. And they were slavers explicitly um, in some of those stories, right? So she had that kind of negative view in her mind to start. But by the time she finished the novel, uh, as was common with her, she kind of saw their point of view. Um, and in particular, she seemed to be convinced that this idea she had come up with uh, by way of the Owen Kali that humans are fundamentally flawed was right. Uh, the idea being essentially that the way we evolved from primates, uh, our brains are stuck between uh, high intellect and capacity to make incredible tools and hierarchical behavior uh, that basically um, makes us totally destructive and makes it impossible for us to kind of evolve. Uh, and so she, she basically persuaded herself that that was true. Uh, in the context of the 80s, she loathed Ronald Reagan uh, and loathed what was happening to the country in that period. Um, and so she became very kind of negative about the prospects of her, uh, a human race that couldn't find some way to change itself. Right. It's interesting in the book how, you know, she's, she's very, as you say, she loathes Ronald Reagan. You say that she, in her journals, is consciously patterning some of her villains after Newt Gingrich or <laughs> right. after uh, right-wing science fiction authors that she dislikes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, she she very commonly started with uh, a character template, right? So a lot of her characters start, the, the heroic female characters start off as Harriet Tubman um, or Sojourner Truth or other kind of major figures from African-American history. And a lot of times the antagonists start out as um, right-wing politicians or, as you say, um, some science fiction writers with whom she had significant disagreements. Is it in, in her notes that she say specifically what science fiction writers she has in mind? Oh, yeah. If you want to know, you can. I don't. I, <laughs> yeah. a, a lot of them are alive. I don't want to start a fight with uh, anybody uh, on her behalf decades after the fact. But, um, yeah, you can go see who exactly who she was talking about in, in Pasadena. All right. Um, but, yeah, so you mentioned that so that she had this uh, this conception then of humans as having this contradiction, as the, the aliens call it, that is just insoluble. And so um, in her next series, she, she thinks it's kind of a, in, in retrospect, she thinks it's kind of a cheat to have these aliens just change humans into something else and starts wondering, well, could humans as we are um, form some sort of better society? And that kind of leads into her parable series. Uh, yeah, so it becomes very much about uh, whether or not the cause of our problems is cultural or biological, right? Whether or not... Um, we could change it with social institutions and social revolutions, or if there's just something about the way we evolved that constantly kind of taints anything we try to achieve, right? And um, when I teach classes, it's often about the difference between utopia and anti-utopia, right? So the, the utopian thinker thinks we could change society, we could make a better one. And the anti-utopian thinker usually tends to think that either the laws of physics or the laws of biology prevent anything better from really being achievable. Um, so she kind of constantly wrestled with the idea of how could you make a different society? So in the intervening period, she thought of making a society um, called the Justice Plague, where she imagined um, justice becoming a kind of virus that could spread from people to people uh, and basically force people to take seriously uh, the rights and needs of other people. And originally she thought that would be a very kind of utopian thing if you could feel someone else's pain you 
almost certainly treat them better, right? Um, and then kind of typical to her way of thinking, she actually wound up thinking about how bad it would be um, for society if you actually were able to make that real. And so she kind of takes that idea and makes it a minor point in um, this other series of books that she does wind up writing, which is the Parable series. Um, if you know that series, it's, it's this formulation called hyperempathy, uh, which becomes the psychosomatic disorder that some of the characters have, where they, uh, they experience other people's pain as their own. Right. And so, that, so you just see somebody in pain and you, you can't help but feeling the pain that you see them feeling? Uh, yeah. In the, in the ultimate version, the published version, the Parables books, it's even uh, foolable, right? Uh, the characters' uh, brothers play pranks on her when she's a child and act like they're in pain. And she still feels this kind of crippling pain. Um, so if what Butler realizes is that if you had this condition of hyperempathy, um, you'd have to actually have this kind of... Um, shoot first orientation to the rest of the world, right? You'd have to, if you were going to have to hurt somebody, you'd have to shoot to kill them to prevent yourself from being crippled by their pain. And so it would actually also create this kind of attitude of um, hyperviolence towards other people, potentially. And that's part of what makes her character, Lauren, in the book so interesting, is that she has both of those orientations simultaneously. She cares about other people, but she's also willing to cut people loose if she has to. It's interesting because I was listening to some interviews with some of Octavia Butler's friends, and they were describing her in a way that almost reminded me of this hyper-empathy, that she herself was had an unusually high level of empathy. I, I absolutely believe it. Um, Lauren, in particular, all of her characters seem to have some kind of basic relationship with her as author surrogates, but um, she herself was quite aware that Lauren, she called Lauren super me, right? The, the me I wish I was um, in some of her journals, right? She really wound up identifying with the character, uh, which is so fascinating because the original version of the character um, was somebody that she was almost unable to write the book because she loathed the character, um, in part because the character is somebody who tries to go out and change the world, which is something Butler was really suspicious of. The character tries to invent a religion that can inspire people to behave better, uh, and in particular to inspire them to get off the planet and start to settle the universe. Um, and she was very uncomfortable with this as an idea, right? That somebody would try to be powerful. And uh, it was a barrier to understanding the character for a long time for her. But she wound up, as usual, right? She wound up kind of strongly, seemingly, on Lauren's side. Right. And that's a pattern throughout her career, you say, right? That people, characters start off as villains, but then she has such an empathetic relationship with them that she comes to, they come around to be the heroes. <laughs> yeah, she really seems to come around to understand where they were coming from, right? And so um, some of that is even even the characters who in the published works seem clearly to be villains, like um, Doro from the Patternist books, if you know those works. She herself saw him in much more complicated terms, uh, in part because she told so many stories about him that never saw the light of day. Yeah. And you mentioned that she had a hard time writing um, the first parable book. And she, uh, in her later years, she had more and more problems with writer's block. And part of that, it seems, is that she was, you know, you say that there are utopian authors and anti-utopian authors, and that she was kind of in this uncomfortable middle ground where she had the, she wanted to be a utopian writer, but her view of humanity was so uh, grim that she had, you know, it, it was, there, there was this tension inside her that she was trying to reconcile. Oh, 100%. Yeah. And so when she goes from the Justice Plague novel to the Parables novel, what she wants to write is a story about humans living on other planets and how that experience might change us, right? To give us that sense of difference that the aliens did or the Justice Plague would, but in a kind of more mundane, kind of physically realist way of thinking, right? 
So she starts to write those and then decides she needs this backstory to explain how that happened, kind of like what happened with Orson Scott Card and Ender's Game. And so she writes the two prequels, essentially, to explain the situation for how they get to outer space. And then 11 years later, when it comes time to write those books, she finds herself unable to actually write them. And so the series winds up being kind of tragically incomplete because it never gets to that point where it was always directed, which was the story of the humans on the other planets. Um, so what we have instead is, this again, a kind of amazing uh, series of works. Um, if you're on Twitter or on the Internet, you'll see a ton of interest in them right now because they uh, include a fascist who wants to make America great again, um, who takes over the country. Uh, and so people have been really interested in this uh, moment right now and revisiting those books. Um, but they never get to that kind of moment of what seemed to her to be this kind of moment of genuine optimism that she was really looking forward to, uh, but never made real. You know, let's say a little, bit, a little bit more about this religion she events, because she says that, you know, since she doesn't think religion's ever going to go away, so why not fashion a religion that's good as opposed to a religion that existing religions that aren't good? Right. And I don't even know that she, she grew up a Baptist, right, and um, left the church, right, and became uh, somewhere between atheist and agnostic. Um, but I think she would say rather than that they're not good or bad, but that they're either well-suited or not well-suited to the times. And I think she thought that the kind of essential thinking of Christianity was not well suited to the world that we were making, um, both in the kind of moment of high capitalism, but also in this kind of apocalyptic moment that she saw coming next, and that something else would be required. Uh, and so the, the religion she invents is called Earthseed, uh, which is essentially a kind of Darwinist religion, of, um, almost worshiping evolution and change and constant adaptation, um, and to orient oneself towards uh, the universe with an idea of maximum flexibility. Uh, and so the story that we have in the two parables books is essentially the story of the founding of this religion uh, by a young black woman who's living in a kind of ruined, apocalyptic uh, California setting, um, starting just a couple of years from now. Right. And she says, which I thought was interesting, was that settling other planets would be so difficult and you would have to be so adaptable that this would maybe be the only thing that could force humans to be decent was that it would be a choice between decency and death. And that would be the only thing that could get us to make a choice in favor of decency. Right. That so much of what we, what we do to each other or to the planet just wouldn't be functional. Uh, if you tried to do it on an alien planet where you were just barely scraping by, right. You'd have to think so carefully about every aspect of your society, um, that it would almost require you to focus and, um, think carefully as opposed to our society where we have so much, um, that we're kind of able to make terrible decisions over and over again and cruel decisions to each other. Um, and I, I like the way you phrase it because the other side of it is that, or you'll die, right? Um, which is part of the narrative. I mean, a lot of times when she thought about these other planets and these other planetary scenarios, she did imagine them failing and, and not working, right? That the humans would not be able to adapt and they would all die. Um, or that they would face, you know, serious, serious crisis that killed all but a tenth of their population before they got it together. Um, so she didn't think of them as kind of really, you know, easy scenarios, but she thought of them as, uh, as maybe our only hope. Right. And so there are two books in the series that were published, Parable of the Sower and Parable of the Talents. And then she had planned out another five or so books, right? So, so what, let's talk about what the rest of the books would have been. Right. So Parable of the Sower is, is Lord as a very young woman. Uh, escaping uh, her, her suburban kind of enclave in California is totaled. Uh, and so they, they flee. And um, she basically winds up founding this kind of utopian commune um, out in the woods. 
uh, with a couple of other like-minded people. And if you stop there, it seems like Lauren got it together and she, she solved everything and then Talents comes in and that utopian community gets totally smashed and the children all get killed, the husbands get killed, um, some of the children are sold to slavery, it's horrific, right? Um, but Lauren survives and kind of continues to try and continues to think of new reason. Uh, and near the end of the book, it skips ahead uh, to the very end of her life, about 40 plus years later, where she's watching the first of these rocket ships that was the point of her religion take off. She's now too old to go with them. Um, but she's watching the first one blast off and she's like, I did it. Um, and it's not 100% clear that she's all that happy with everything she had to do to get there, but she did it. Um, and so the next book would have been called Parable the Trickster. And it would have been either a standalone novel or the first of four or more other novels set at different versions of these kind of earth seed colonies um, as they had to uh, find ways to survive uh, on other planets um, in hostile ecologies or with compromised crews that include people who weren't necessarily on board or something terrible happens and everybody gets sick or all the food runs out, right? All of these kinds of things that they discover. Um, and so within, you know, I loved the Parables books and was so excited to see um, Parable the Trickster in whatever form it was. And what I found was just dozens of these versions of the story, right? Where some with aliens and some with body swapping and some with madness and some with murder and all just all of these versions of a story she could never quite get going. Um, so they all go on for 12, or 30 or 40 pages and then she starts over. Um, and she did that more or less until she died. Uh, she never really got going on any of them, but always wanted to return to it. And you say that you were actually the very first scholar to open up this box and look at these, you know, these uh, rough drafts. That's what they told me. I was really excited about that. Um, I got there, you know, a couple weeks just by coincidence after the archive opened. Um, it wound up being uh, that close. And so uh, I was able to kind of uh, look at them and, and really be the only person aside from the librarians who knew uh, the next stage in the story. And so that was a real treat. Yeah. I mean, is there anything more to say about why you think she kept moving from idea to idea to idea, never settling on one of them? Uh, there's a lot. There's a lot of factors that kind of came together. Um, one of the amazing things that happens to her in that 90s period is that she wins the MacArthur Genius Grant, um, which was a total shock to her, um, ended her money problems essentially overnight and gave her this kind of um, incredible credibility, um, not just within science fiction, but in mainstream kind of uh, literary culture as well, right? Uh, it almost made her this kind of public intellectual, right? That um, that she even more so than she had already been. Uh, but it, she felt like it was um, there was a little bit of paralysis that came with it too, right? That she, the book needed to be so good um, that she didn't quite know how to do it. Um, so she talks a little bit about that, um, and she was very also um, worried about being perceived as ripping other people off. So there was a version that she got pretty deep into and she just realized this is too much like Red Mars um, and she, she put it all away. Uh, and there was another version that was a lot, that just was centered on a blindness narrative. It wasn't even like um, Jose Saramago's blindness, but she felt like it was too close and that people wouldn't like it. So she kind of pulled back from that too. Um, so in some sense, it was her own kind of perfectionism that kept her from being able to finish as well as never quite knowing how to tell a story um, about humanity that's kind of detethered from history and from even from biology in some ways, right? It's a difficult problem. So she never, she just never quite got to where she needed to be with it. Um, and of course, also, she didn't know that she was going to die so young, right? So 
she may have just felt more like she was taking a break from something she could come back to. And it's only we who unfortunately know that it never happened. Right. And this MacArthur Fellowship, it was the first ever awarded to a science fiction author. So it was a big deal in the community. Oh, it was a tremendous, um, a tremendous paradigm shift of credibility for the whole community, not just for her. Right. And she got all these letters congratulating her and was uh, very embarrassed about it. Right. As she barely writes about it in her own journals and makes self-deprecating jokes whenever anybody writes her to congratulate her. Um, but it was a kind of major deal. And since then, it's, it's a number of um, it's fairly common now for science fiction writers to get uh, the MacArthur grant. But she was the first. Yeah. And you mentioned like she barely met, I think you reproduced the page from her journal, right, where she mentioned she just says got a phone call today. And basically, that's all she says about it. You know, it's, it's yes. so, so low, low key. It's, it's incredibly spare. It's in one of her travel journals. Um, some of her her journals from the 90s seem to be, um, I don't know if they were destroyed or, or thrown out or something, but it's, it's not as um, complete coverage as there are in other periods. So um, when I got there, I was shocked that I couldn't find any reference to it anywhere. Uh, and then finally, in one of these travel journals, um, I found this reference. Uh, I think Iana Jameson was the one who um, told me it was there. Um, which is she just mentions very calmly that she got this um, call today and then refers to the prize as Uncle Boise and talks about all the things Uncle Boise will make possible for her and require her to do, um, totally in code. Um, I don't know who she thought she was hiding it from or maybe it was just her own way of kind of processing it, right? But it, she, she never really kind of made sense of it seemingly to herself that she had won this prize, that this thing has happened. Um, even though it did change her life, it allowed her to buy her house and um, take care of her mother. Uh, with stability, right? Which to her was almost like a miracle, considering what she'd been before. Yeah, you mentioned that she had become sort of a public intellectual, and she was getting fan mail from you mentioned Whoopi, Whoopi Goldberg and Lavar Burton and Queen Latifah. Yeah, yeah. And this is really—I guess we haven't talked about this so much—but she was incredibly shy, and so for her to become this public figure, giving all these lectures and things, was a big, um, you know, big transition for her. It was very hard for her. Um, she says she was dyslexic. Um, it wasn't clear to me th that there was ever a kind of formal moment of diagnosis with that. Um, but she seems to have had um, certain kind of repetitive spelling errors or things like that. But she, it made her very worried about reading her own work aloud. Um, and actually, she actually refused to do it for most of her career. She would never read at a public reading. Uh, she would talk and give these kinds of lectures. Uh, and they were incredibly well rehearsed. Um, to the point where she was even kind of rehearsing and kind of writing down small talk, right, in case uh, she needed to do it. Um, so it was kind of an incredible moment for this incredibly shy person uh, to become so famous and to become uh, such the center of attention. She did a lot better with it, I think, in the letters than in conventions and things like that, where she always felt a little strange. Right. There's a part that, that really sticks in my mind where in her notes to herself, going to some public appearance, she's uh, sort of chiding herself not to use any words that she's not sure, not 100% sure how to pronounce them and things like that. Yeah, she, you know, has this whole list of different ways to not embarrass herself in public. And so, like you said, um, not using words, she wasn't 100% sure how to say them or what they meant or what their connotations would be, right? She, you know, how to be kind of do small talk with people. She would kind of write down suggestions to herself about how to manage that, um, when to smile, to smile at people even if she was only thought she might know them uh, was one of her rules. Um, look for a bathroom after lunch. I mean, she just had this, you know, incredibly detailed 
list of how to almost program herself to be able to do what was required of her as a first as a networking writer and then later as a kind of celebrity writer. And you mentioned that her her writing was really influential, not just on other writers, but also on other intellectuals. You mentioned Donna Haraway. Could you talk Mm -hmm. about what, what was the influence there? So Donna Haraway was writing about cyborg feminism in the 1980s and 1990s, uh, which was an idea of moving away from the idea of women as close to nature, uh, maternal, right? Uh, And instead looking at women as cyborgs, as robots. And she says in the the piece, the very famous piece, right, that she'd rather be a cyborg than a goddess. One of her key examples winds up being um, the Xenogenesis books, uh, which she talked about a lot. and Butler's work winds up being really influential in a lot of different discourses of that sort because the, the stories are both so interesting and because they have such interesting ideas about um, difference and about otherness and postcoloniality and things like that. So she's wound up being incredibly influential as an almost co-theorist for a lot of people in the academy. Right, because it does seem like, like academia embraced her in a way that they haven't or that they were slower to embrace other science fiction authors. At one point you describe her audience as made up of science fiction fans, feminists, and uh, African-Americans, I think. were the Yeah, I mean, that was her description of her uh, audience that she would give to publishers. And then later she added um, New Age people, too, because the religious themes of the parables books, right? Um, but academics were a big part of that, that they uh, were really fascinated by her work, rightly so, uh, and, the, and the ways that she brought this kind of new spin uh, to science fiction uh, from her background. Yeah. Well, and talk a little bit about her influence on other writers, because you mentioned at the end of the book quite a long list of authors and organizations and things that have been uh, inspired by her. So we have today a fairly wide number of um, black authors and black women authors um, internationally, right, who are writing science fiction, um, nearly all of whom will mention her as a kind of key influence and someone that they think a lot about. Uh, we have the Octavia Brood anthology, Octavia's Brood anthology, um, which is uh, social justice fiction that was kind of inspired by her, uh, as well as um, some of the Afrofuturist corrections like Dark Matter, uh, which make real the project she tried and failed to do of an anthology of black science fiction from the 80s um, that she personally was never able to accomplish. Um, so we have this huge um, range of people who look to her as an inspiration, um, not just black women either, right? But she um, has to be one of the most influential science fiction writers um, of all time, just in terms of uh, how transformative she was in the way we think about certain kinds of tropes that are very common. Um, I think you'd put her up there with um, Phil K. Dick and Le Guin and um, Delaney and these other people who seem to have really made this impact on Uh, the way science fiction circulates, Um, especially that kind of mode of literary slipstream science fiction, right? Um, That's somewhere in the middle between genre fiction and um, uh, prize-winning novels, right? She's has to be, you know, top two, top three in that list. Yeah. I mean, you mentioned that she's been in the headlines recently because Parable of the Talents features this fascist politician who says, Make, who promises to make America great again. Is mm-hmm. there anything else to say about that, or how strong do you think the <laughs> parallels are there? Uh, well, you know, it, it's as we're recording this, it's only December, right? So um, who would dare predict the future after everything that's happened in 2016 already? Um, you know, the, it's a very interesting parallel, but 
for her, it's, it's exactly what Trump was doing, right? She was reaching back to Reagan. Um, and it was Reagan's slogan, make America great again, that she was thinking about, because it was, it was Reagan for her, who seemed to be this kind of total destruction of um, optimism in American democracy, right? That we would elect Reagan and then elect him a second time seemed to her to be almost confirmation uh, that there was something fundamentally wrong with us. Uh, and so she thought the system was kind of always teetering at the brink of some kind of um, dictatorial nightmare. And so what she imagines in Parable of the Talents is really much more about that than it is about a concrete prediction of the future. Um, that said, the, the books are stunning to read. Um, they're written in the 90s. They take place a little bit in the future, but really do seem to be predicting uh, a world we seem to be headed to, right? Especially in the level of ecological catastrophe. Um, they're great global warming novels alongside everything else. All right. Well, that's uh, <laughs> that's a little depressing, but... Uh... Uh, no, I mean, that's... <laughs> well, her work, her work is so interesting, right? Because they're, they're about survival, but for her, survival doesn't necessarily mean that you get a party at the end or that you're even really all that happy about it, right? Um, it's a struggle. And so a lot of her books end on these kinds of really uh, gray notes um, and parables, novels in particular, right? Because we never saw what is framed, at least, as the happy ending, Um they they have this kind of weird ambiguous character at the end. No, but that is maybe I guess a uh, a good insight for our times that survival was its own kind of victory. Oh, absolutely right. But um, she wouldn't end in there, right? <laughs> she she would also say that you know it's it's necessary, right? You need to do it um, because you can't. There's no other option but to survive. Um, but it isn't necessarily going to make you happy either. So it's 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 a it's she's she's going to be an important writer, uh, it seems like, for uh, the coming years. Right. Where we've all discovered that history doesn't just end just because it, it seems like um, you're happy with where things are at right now. Yeah, you said that was her her great nightmare was that history isn't a line, but a, a circle. Yeah, a loop. She often thought about um, how easy it would be for everything to just kind of go back to the way it was. Right. That the things that seemed like they were permanent progress were really just a kind of epiphenomenon of the wealth of the United States um, in the latter half of the 20th century, and that when that fell apart, um, all the bad days would come back again. Well, like you said, it's only December, so we'll have to, we'll have to see how <laughs> things go. Um, but yeah, so we're pretty much out of time. So, Jerry, do you have any, anything else you just want to, any final words you want to say or any other projects you want to mention or anything like that? Oh, well, you know, I write a lot for popular outlets as well as for journals so people can look for me on twitter and the weird things i write about um she was a big star trek fan and so i've, I've thought about her with regard to that a lot um as the new star trek series comes out um she watched it as a kid was wrote fan fiction actually which you could read in the library uh and then on her you know grocery list and things she would occasionally find references to captain cisco and janeway and other things like that and so um I often think about, you know, it's how sad it is that she died so young um, and isn't here to keep writing for us, right? She has so many ideas she was still working on. And so um, I'd even just want to read a review of the new Star Trek movies or the new Star Trek Discovery series from her. Um, there's a lot she she still had to say uh, before she went away. Do you think uh, younger authors might uh, go through those Huntington archives and pull out some of those ideas and run with them? You know, that's a tough question, right? Because that would be such a hard, it would be such a hard task for that writer. 
Um, you know, you think about the, the the guy who tried to continue the Hitchhiker's Guide books, right? It's almost an impossible task uh, to stand up to something that's a kind of acknowledged classic, right? Or the people who tried to finish some of Asimov's series after he died, right? That's a tough one. Um, what I find interesting about the archive is how many things are in there that are complete that could just be published in their current form. Um, and that's what I hope as some time passes and um, as the literary state kind of starts to go through them, they start to release some of the unpublished short stories and a couple of the unfinished novels um, that really wouldn't require necessarily um, intervention from another writer, right? Because I don't know that anyone could realistically live up to the anticipation of a new Octavia Butler novel. Um, that said, there are so many ideas for the talents that it would be an awesome kind of um, Tales from the Most Eisley Cantina kind of spinoff project, right? Everybody gets to take one and run with it uh, on their one version of an Earthseed thing. So um, I'd love to see people try that. It would be a tough road, uh, I think, to live up to her memory. But um, there's a lot of people now who might want to take a crack at it. All right. So I think that's a good note to end on. So we've been speaking with Jerry Canavan. And this new book, again, is called Octavia E. Butler. And it's part of the Modern Masters of Science Fiction series from the University of Illinois Press. And so, Jerry, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. And that was our interview. So a big thanks again to Jerry Canavan for joining us on the show. Big thanks as well to everyone who's given us five stars on iTunes, including Agnes Denny in the Netherlands, who writes, This show is geekery in the best sense of the word. It's about curiosity, passion, and thinking things through. That's an interesting question. It's a recurring refrain among the interviewees on Geek's Guide. And it's true. Host David Bar Curley is consistently well-prepared and genuinely interested in the answers to his well-thought-out questions, which in turn is easy when the guests are such consistently interesting people. The Roundtable episodes deserve a lot of love, too. They're hilarious, insightful, and brimming with enthusiasm. And there's women on this show, like on the Roundtables and among the interviewees. The producers recognize it's something the genre traditionally has some work to do on, and they are quietly doing their share to change that. Without fanfare, just doing the work. I appreciate that immensely. So yeah, five stars. I'd give you six, but that's how many there are. So big thanks again to Agnes Denny for that great review. Special thanks as well to David Williams and to Michelle Conkus, who both just signed up this week to support us on Patreon. Geek's Guide to the Galaxy is made possible thanks to support from listeners like you. So if you enjoy the show and want it to continue, please sign up to give us a dollar or two per episode over at patreon.com geeks. And if you'd rather make a one-time or fixed monthly contribution, you can do that via PayPal over at geeksguideshow.com slash crowdfunding. So big thanks again to everyone who's contributed. We really appreciate it. All right, so that was our show. So thanks everyone for listening, and we'll see you next time. The Geek's Guide to the Galaxy is a production of Wired.com. For more information about the show, visit geeksguideshow.com. To learn more about your host, visit davidbarkirtley.com. Music and voiceover produced by yours truly, Jack Kincaid. If you enjoyed this program, tell your friends. If you didn't enjoy it, tell no one. Thank you for listening.